Welcome to episode five of the Using AI podcast, where we dive into the world of artificial intelligence and explore its latest advancements, applications, and sometimes, admittedly, controversies. I'm joined by usual suspects, ML research scientist Alex Papadopoulos-Kofiatis and AI founder Rafi Farouk. Um, And we'll be discussing Sam Altman's recent Senate testimony and the implication it has on the AI regulation landscape. Plus, we will delve a little into the theme of prompt hacking, aka prompt engineering, aka all the rage, and discuss what different methods we've tried to get the results we want via things like OpenAI's Playground, via OpenAI APIs, but also through other tools um, such as uh, image generation tools. Also, for the first time, if you want to watch this podcast, we are now available on YouTube. Woohoo! Google search Genie AI YouTube, and you'll find all our episodes right there. If you still use Google, that is. Let's get after it. All right. Uh, welcome, Alex. Welcome, Rafi. Hey, Alex. Welcome to myself. And should we just have a quick discussion about our images today as our backgrounds? Um, mine is a cyberpunk laboratory. So it's sort of like this nice, uh, looks a little bit like a medical laboratory or an engineering lab of some kind, but there's just paint splatters everywhere and a man in a backpack looking very confused and i grabbed this from the stable diffusion subreddit which i only learned today really is uh uk uh founder run so that makes me feel a nice little bit of national pride what have you got alex so mine is uh, I-, I tried uh, adobe firefly for the first time uh this time and it's uh prompt uh prompt engineering actually it's a uh, I actually wrote prompt engineering into the prompt and got this uh, this image. Prompt engineering, um, watercolor art or something like that. So I found it pretty cool. I like yours, Alex, because I couldn't tell that it's generated initially. So it could well be like an actual photo um, with, uh, with a filter or something like that. So it's pretty cool. What is yours, Rafi? Should I ask? Yeah, um, I typed in to Dali to... Sam Altman as a politician, and uh, two things were surprising. One were that the images looked surprisingly positive. I thought they would depict politicians as kind of evil masterminds. Um, And the second was that I think they kind of got some of his face. It's not that accurate. I think Alex D, you were saying he looks a bit like a cross between Tony Blair, George Bush, and uh, and Sam Altman himself. Which is a good outcome based on your prompt, I guess. But Yeah, I'm not sure good outcome in terms of what you want to look like but (laughs) all right well uh the thing i learned about stable diffusion today is that they trained their i think their original model which was released in november on two billion images which they describe as a snapshot of the internet quite a large snapshot do you guys want to have a guess at how large the file that they compressed that down to was. Imagine zipping 2 billion images. Wait, you mean the actual model that they trained or the file, like the training data set? I think the training data set, that's what he was referring to. But but after it had been compressed and so it could be easily accessed. So I guess like duplicate stuff removed. My guess is 50 terabytes or 100 terabytes. Not, Not sure how to guess here. Yeah, I'm... Let me say 200 terabytes just to have like a, a bit of competition there. W- would your answer change if it was the model? Yes, definitely. The model will be a lot smaller. Okay. Maybe you're probably guessing for the model then. Okay. I would say like um, maybe 10 to 20 gigabytes. I think the model could be a bit bigger. I think we're looking at 100, 100 to 150. Maybe 100 gig, 150 max, maybe. The answer is two gigabytes. Two gig. Yeah, that's definitely the model, right? Not two million images, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not that surprised as well. It just, it just seems amazing to me. Two How many million images, two gigabytes? I don't know what the sort of like uh, size per image is. Two billion divided by. It was, I guess, you know, one. One billion images is one gigabyte. Uh, so, a thousand versus a thousand means that a million images is one megabyte, right? Yeah, that's so, accurate. So you cannot make that calculation exactly, Alex, because for the size of the model, the size of the training data doesn't actually matter. So what matters is how many parameters the model has. So what the model learns is essentially a lot of uh, weights as connections between its uh, its neurons, and that's where it encodes all uh, information about the images. So doesn't actually remember all the images, but it learns 
like characteristic of the images and then uh, encodes that uh, in its weights. So it's the weights, like the number of weights essentially that uh, that matter for the size of the, of the model, which is pretty cool, right? Because it means that it's not just doing memorization of images, it's, uh, it's actually learning features of those images. That's what it enables it. Uh, that's what enables it to um, to be this good at generating as well. Yes, yeah, amazing. That is quite surprising, though. Um, I, I don't know the stable diffusion architecture as well as I do um, transformers and language models, but I did download GPTJ, which is an open source one of the first open source uh, chat GPTs to come out onto my local hard drive um, a few months ago, and I. I think it was around two or three gig. I could be wrong, but that's what I recall. Obviously, you can. Um, there are ways to compress that during runtime and things like that. But um, yeah, it was. I feel like it was over a gig at least. So that's that's fascinating. All right, should we move on to the juicy topic of the week, which was Sam Altman's testimony? Sounds good. Now, I think a few people were suggesting that he looked quite robotic. I actually thought he did quite well. And I thought his answers were quite good. And I thought some of the questions were quite good. So I thought it was just a bit better overall than, you know, some of the Zuckerberg testimonies, for example, uh, were painful to watch. Uh, this actually had some gems in. Uh, my personal highlight was when uh, there were lots of points of mentioning genies jumping out of bottles and genies not being able to be put back in bottles. And I couldn't help but think that we worked for a company called Genie AI, and that was quite convenient. So hopefully people start searching AI genies, they'll find us. Maybe they were actually talking about us. I think maybe we need to get our ego back in the bowl. I, I, I agree. I liked, uh, I, I listened to an abridged version, actually, but uh, I liked Sam's answers as well. Um, he did seem to be genuinely concerned about the risks that, uh, that AI technology is uh, introducing my uh, my top level interpretation is it a little bit cynical um which is that uh i i i somehow doubt that sam Altman really cares about um humanity and like seriously preventing ai risk i think ultimately he's politically really smart and obviously advised by the best of silicon valley so it's politically smart to get ahead of the inevitable backlash that will come up as AI starts to meaningfully replace jobs and affect major political events like the US election. So really, he's just, for me, he's making a politically very smart move. And the way he appeared in Congress, you know, people, the mass public, uh, for better or worse, may not be able to fully pass and judge the content of what he's saying, but it's all about perception. And because he's taking the initiative and because he's suggesting regulation, he just comes off in a better light in general, I think. Um, and I think that sort of branding in the fog of war of politics is what he's played really well here. And you called him cynical. <laughs> yeah, I was saying my my um, interpretation of, of the event, my interpretation was quite cynical. Interesting, Rafi. What, what do you think about um, the fact that, well, he claims at least that he has no equity in OpenAI and that he's... Um, salary is uh, just high enough to get uh, health insurance. Yeah, I saw some tweets about that. I haven't looked into the details, so I'm not sure. I mean, presumably it would be on, you could find it out in their tax filings. Um, so that information should be publicly available, but I, I don't, I haven't looked into that. I would find that very surprising if he has no equity. Salary, sure, you know, you can believe that, but with equity, that's yeah, he did specifically say that he has zero equity, which makes me wonder, like, what's his... Uh, he, he claimed that the, the reason why he's doing this is because he genuinely enjoys this job and he believes in the future of uh, of AI. But uh, I wonder, like, what, uh, what his angle is, I guess. Were there any other areas that you guys thought was particularly interesting one thing that uh, that was mentioned was um the impact that ai might have in the short term in the uh, us elections as frafi mentioned as well and it seemed uh, to me that uh, some altman but also the, the the other speakers were generally worried about that impact and uh, were pressing for like very rapid interventions there and uh, collaboration between uh, the us government and AI companies to to figure out some kind of solution there. That said, not all was negative, right? So particularly some Altman seemed to be quite um, quite optimistic about the future of uh, jobs. He said that 
AI will replace some jobs, but uh, mostly AI is a tool and not. Uh, so it's it's a way to do tasks and not jobs. That was, I think, the way that uh, he put it. So it will transform some jobs, replace a small number of jobs, but also create a lot of new, better jobs. I'm not sure I share that uh, optimism, but he did seem optimistic about it. So it was not just a... Uh, uh, gloom and doom hearing I guess yeah I feel like I if you guys don't mind I just want to tie up that Sam Altman equity point it's just been on my mind bothering me um just reading this CNBC article and they're saying that when OpenAI uh created a for-profit entity back in 2019 OpenAI LP then Sam Altman did not take equity in that, apparently, according to CNBC. Um, so that was in 2019. And OpenAI launched as a non-profit model in 2015, as we know, with backing from Elon Musk, $1 billion. Um, and then uh, Musk invested $100 million of his own money. Um, and yeah, OpenAI is now looking to tender their shares at 29 billion US dollars in valuation. So not clear. It seems like Sam didn't take equity in this for-profit entity, but maybe he had equity in the previous entity. I don't know how funds transfer between the two. Um, maybe someone, one of our listeners can look into that and, and let us know uh, in, in on LinkedIn or Twitter or something. But um, yeah, happy to revert back to the effect of open AI, open AI on politics. Yeah, uh, well, open AI on politics, I think, uh, let me mention uh, just one thing on the tasks not jobs as soon as you get something it, as soon as you call a task something that joins together two tasks then you have workflows so it's not much of a leap to go from okay ai does tasks to ai does jobs um but there will be a transition as it goes from tasks to being able to do more and more tasks that are tied together and related and at a higher and better quality you know better performance if you jump on the wagon now and you use ai to do a bunch of tasks in your job, you, and we'll come on to this, I guess, in the prompt engineering, uh, prompt hacking section, you'll know already what AI is good at, what it will be brilliant at, and what it might struggle with a bit. And I think it's just a piece of advice for anyone listening is to, you know, get involved and start trying to complete tasks with AI, because then when it's much more powerful, you'll have the upper hand on other candidates for roles and uh, just in your own work life balance, you'll be able to get more done. Um, I do think, you know, we we we, uh, we we chopped up, we snipped up a little bit of um, Sam Altman's testimony and popped it on our, our TikTok and our LinkedIn. So uh, have a gander at that. And he's there's one section that's sort of like AI and the future of work. And then there's another section that's like AI and tasks, not jobs. And they kind of contradict each other. But ultimately, his belief is, and I think this is one that I wholly believe, and I think Rafi, you believe as well, is that new, better jobs will be created. There will be creative destruction, as there is whenever there is disruption. Um, I do think that the creative destruction will be beneficial for a lot of people joining the job market now and able to upskill to using AI for a lot of business-as-usual tasks, a lot of uh, rote tasks, um, you know, generation tasks, like we have discussed, you know, what, what the models are amazing at already today. So I don't know if either of you would add to that or uh, disagree with elements of that and then let's talk talk a bit about politics but remember we're going to have a whole episode on that yeah i mean history is showing that when there's large te technological innovation more jobs get created than um destroyed i'm personally a bit more negative with this latest um development of ai as of now uh, I see a lot of jobs that can be near fully automated or large portions of the of the roles that can be automated. And I don't see as many jobs being created. Rather, the juniors of, of these departments might not be as much required, but the senior people will still be required to oversee and direct the AI. In particular, I think jobs that have um, lots of dependencies are safer and jobs that are very siloed and don't require many inputs and dependencies to run um, are more at risk. And a good example is salespeople. Um, if you think about it, a salesperson doesn't need contact with pretty much anyone else in the business. I mean, sure, you have to know what the product is you're selling, the latest updates, probably you want to feedback any 
user feedback to the product team. Um, but on the whole, a salesperson can wake up, call their clients, try to sell, close some deals, finish work. And so you already have companies, startups now that are fully automating that entire sales process from start to end. Um, so that's kind of how I see it going. Sales specifically has a human element to it as well, though. So you need to persuade someone although we've seen that uh, those new large language models are very good at persuading so maybe that's a it's another good argument here and with the language models you have the, the the advantage of scale so you don't have human constraints you can just contact thousands of clients at the same time and you only need an x percent of that to to work exactly yeah i should probably um have an addendum which is this would work for low market as in the lower end of the market where you're doing mass market sales, um, as the thing you're selling increases in price, uh, it's probably still a bit more whining and dining and relationship building. Yeah, I follow that. I do think that there's there's a large belief in the sales industry that the human element adds a feeling of expense, a feeling of care. And it's, it's, it's like when you have a customer, you have a technical support call and you pick up the phone and you speak to a human straight away and you can sort of like ramble your way around the issue and, and they can help figure out what it is you're trying to say because they've spoken to lots of people before. Now, an AI can do that, but if it can't, when it fails, you're a lot less forgiving. Um, like when you try and get through those automated machines to speak to the right department and you end up wanting to throw your phone at the wall. So I think you can imagine a salesperson following a script and the salesperson is AI. That is something that I wouldn't look favorably at a company for, for using at the moment. Now that will change, just like Rafi and I were talking about earlier this week, um, the idea of AI-generated YouTube videos. And there, there are a lot of... Um, uses of this where people are taking things like video game uh, recordings and doing text to voice AI generation over the top and repurposing that content or adding like an AI generated commentary on the top. Um, now, how you add personality to the AI generated text, I think is an interesting thing, but generally, and I guess we'll touch on this next week when we're talking about AI companions, the ability to embed a personality that you can connect with I think AI is going to get very good at that um, fairly quickly and is probably quite good in some places already. But the, the sticking point for me is the feeling of if it's another person, that is more expensive. It's their time. It's their effort. They've taken the time to understand your need. And that feels like a higher quality of service. Um, but certainly as well, not, not just low level product sales, but I suppose if we're on support for a moment, that the low level support queries could be very well handled and then escalated. But whether an AI confidently knows when to escalate to human uh, is another matter. And we've already seen that, you know, AI chatbots and customer service isn't, isn't new at all. Um, persuasion is something that we mentioned earlier. That feels like a very nice segue into AI and politics. Why are these models so good at persuading? It's a good question. I don't know the answer, but they do seem to be uh, quite good at it. Maybe because um, they can offer personalized custom like uh, persuasion techniques i guess i'm not sure if this made sense so let me let me try to uh to rephrase this they can spend all the cognitive effort i guess on building a persuasion technique that works on your specific profile whereas other kind of uh influencing techniques on a political level work on populations right so you cannot afford one-to-one -one relationship and to try and to personally influence every person that you are trying to influence so you're you're casting a wide net in a way but then the AI, the 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 way that uh, they're going to try to change your mind is dependent on the conversation so far and on you as a person from what they've seen so far. Yeah, I believe um, I may have mentioned in a previous episode, but myself and Alex P went to a prompt engineering jam in London, and I met someone there from a from the Labour Party. Um, if you're listening from abroad, that's one of the major UK political parties. And she was automating uh, canvassing outreach letters and emails by hyper-personalizing them to each person's job and demographics. And obviously that can be done automatically across thousands, if not millions of people. Uh, yeah. And it, it won't just be the messaging that's personalized, but it won't be 
hard to personalize the channels and the entire approach as well. So it adds sort of multi-dimensions to the way that you can personalize. Usually you personalize within one channel, but this is this is multimodal personalization, right? You'll know where an answer phone left on a landline is going to have more or less impact than sending a DM on Twitter, for example. And they'll be able to guess that with higher and higher accuracy based on the graph or, or is, is that the right term when you're talking about like all the different data that you hold about someone that might be in slightly different forms, like the graph data that you hold on. Yeah, someone. it could be yeah, a user graph or something like that. Another thing that comes to mind that makes those models good at persuasion is that uh, there's been a, a step change there, right? So an emerging behavior that these models can now reason a lot better than uh, than than previous models in this uh, space. And there was an interesting uh, paper by Microsoft uh, called Sparks of AGI, where they took GPT-4 and they, um, they did a lot of tests on it just to see what it's capable of and what it's not. And interestingly enough, they took the GPT-4 uh, model that uh, before any censoring, so not the one that was publicly released, but the raw model that was uh, that was initially trained before any of the safety considerations. And one thing that they did find uh, that model was very good at was theory of mind. So that's um, in psychology when uh, you understand what the other people the, the other person is thinking because you know that they have a mind as well and you can kind of relate to them and uh, build a mental uh, model of what they are thinking and how they will uh, react if you do that and how they'll react if you do the other thing so um, they tested that quite a bit and they found that it was surprisingly good at that so that's also what gives it powers of persuasion, right? So it knows that if I say this thing, then this will uh, influence the human in that way, which is quite scary, right? Because you have that power, but you don't have any any kind of uh, moral inhibitions and constraints around using it. So if you have a goal, you can uh, you can just go ahead and use it as much as you want to try and uh, influence someone's behavior. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I, I always like to remind people that um, I think there's two super high level things that these machine learning models are doing. One is because they're sequence to sequence, they take an input sequence of what we call tokens, which were essentially um, words, and they predict using a probability distribution the next most likely tokens. So at, at its simplest, it's like completing a sentence, sentence. And so if you give it all the relevant inputs, like um, what the person you're speaking to is like, who they are, and, and that background context, then the model will seem as if it's um, reasoning really well and personalizing its response. But what it's really doing under the hood is predicting the net the most likely responses given the input. And the second thing is that because it's trained on so much data and because neural nets are essentially many layers of uh, what we call activation functions, which are non-linearities across layers, um, the neural net has modeled the relationships between many, many different concepts, millions, if not billions of concepts. And so when you put those two things together, the relationships between many, many concepts and predicting output words, given input words, you get the effect of re reasoning, persuasion, and so on. Um, but even as we move to AGI, I would contend that we're observing an imitation, almost a perfect imitation of reasoning, maybe as, as opposed to like bottom-up reasoning. I don't know. That's just an interesting thought. But then at the same time, Rafi, we don't know in humans what the actual mechanisms of reasoning are. So it's uh, just as opaque as the model's uh, reasoning. And at some point, if from a behavioral perspective, the model seems like it's reasoning for all, in all intents and purposes, then what's the difference from actual reasoning? So it's... It, it's hard to make that uh, philosophical distinction, I guess. I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, different uh, philosophy of mind views on this. But uh, yeah, it's been, I think, a, a major conflict between many camps of philosophy of mind. Maybe what, uh, what I'm saying now is a more behavioral psychology approach. But uh, yeah, at some point, if it 
really looks like it's reasoning, it's kind of reasoning, I guess. Yeah, I think this is actually the crux of the matter. Um, remember this, this very discussion, because I think this will come up in years to come, because AGI will perfectly imitate humans to the point that, as you say, it's essentially the same thing, if not better. And by the way, I don't think we should measure AGI relative to humans. I think we should let it be smart in its own um, dimension, which we can't even imagine how that would look like. Um, but the point is, when AGI can perfectly do everything humans can, is it human? And that's really the realization that humans will have, I believe, um, philosophically, will realize what it means to be human. And I'm really looking forward to that realization. But we've got on a big philosophical um tangent here but hopefully i think it's interesting personally there is a point of view in philosophy of mind and cognitive science that uh, believes that in order to have an artificial general intelligence you need to get closer and closer to to a human physically as well so you need uh, you need the you need a body you need to be able to interact with the environment and you need the same kind of uh, impulses that humans have and inputs that humans have in order to build something that uh, actually functions like a human. So it might be that uh, the closer these machines get to human intelligence, if ever, right, the closer they will look like humans as well. So they'll need uh, a body that's similar to a human in order to have a human experience and to be able to function and reason like a human. Yeah, I, I actually agree. And one of the big missing pieces that we haven't factored into AI at the moment is emotions, because uh, humans can be thought of as thoughts, feelings, and actions. And right now we're solving thoughts and actions, but we haven't solved feelings. Um, maybe because feelings don't have utility <laughs> uh, from an AI perspective, but maybe they do as well. I think they definitely do. Anyway, maybe we've uh, we've uh, widened the discussion uh, too much here, but it's a very interesting uh, discussion on philosophy of mind. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll wrap up the uh, Sam Altman testimony um, as well as others. So it's worth saying, um, also testifying on Tuesday was Christina Montgomery. She's IBM's Vice President and Chief Privacy and Trust Officer. Uh, and Gary Marcus, who is a former New York University professor, well known in artificial intelligence. Uh, have you guys come across his work much, by the way? Had you heard of him before? I think Uber? he was a director of AI in Uber as well. Not anymore. And now he's uh, he, he's a CEO, at least co-founder of a company. I don't remember the name, but... Uh, robust you know? AI? Robust AI, exactly. Yeah. So, sorry, I missed who it was. Could you mind repeating that? Gary Marcus. Zubin Garamani, you mean? No, Gary yeah. Marcus. Okay. Sorry, my Greek pronunciation did not work here. Well, who, who are you hearing, Rafi? I thought we were saying Zubin Garamani. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was at Uber as well. I'm not sure, but he was um, a professor at Cambridge and now he's at one of the big tech companies leading their charge. I can't remember which, but one of them is in Google's and whatnot. Yeah, interesting. It, it, it feels like a very new space and there's still a lot of thought leaders. Uh, coming out from the woodwork of labs and big tech, isn't there? Um, so I think feel free to name drop and we can share uh, Twitter links as well for interesting people to follow in the field to get the information right from the source rather than just from media outlets. That's something I always prefer to do. Uh, so uh, five key takeaways from the uh, from the hearing. Uh, the hearing opened with the deep fake. Eh, you know, we've seen that load before. Um, AI-generated voice, AI-generated intro. Uh, Alex Papp has actually been dabbling with AI-generated versions of myself uh, and Rafi and Alex Papp. I think... I was um, going to say, yeah. Should um, we publish... Let, uh, after this episode is published, I'll just publish like a, a, a three-minute um, like bonus episode, which is just that recording in full, unless there's any reason you guys don't think that's a good idea. It's just quite funny, isn't it, to listen to? It completely fails with my voice um i think my voice doesn't sound anything like me mostly because it uh, it uh, throws away my greek accent and just replaces it with a british accent instead so it's uh, quite funny i thought that alex's voice was uh, very good maybe a bit robotic but 
I don't know. I, I'm not completely sure I would be able to distinguish it for a specific statement uh, from the real Alex. I know that's a controversial view, but... You should get it to say my voice is my password and then uh, phone out my bank. <laughs> oh, sounds scary, but it could work. I agree. Let's let's post it as well. It's just a fun three-minute uh, podcast. By the way, the content is also completely generated by GPT-4, um, so... There's no human element involved in uh, in this, except for selecting the right prompt, which uh, brings us to a topic, I guess. Um, I did uh, go through some variations of the prompt uh, before it generated a script that made sense. Well, so let's let's hold the phone on that and come back to that. Um, the uh, funnily enough, I found that we had been mentioned in a podcast, and then I went to it and I realized it was just someone who had created an AI lawyer podcast that just reads all of the news about AI and law, but it is AI itself. And I was like, ah, oh, well, I mean, that's easy. They just grabbed that off the internet. Anyway, okay, so key takeaway one, it opened with a deep fake. We've seen that loads before. We'll post our own deep voice fakes uh, as a as a mini podcast. Um, AI could cause significant harm was the second takeaway. Uh, Rafi thought, uh, uh, as already said, that he thought uh, Sam Alton was maybe a bit cynical on his views to do with that there. Um, AI regulation is needed. Is point number three. We've heard that many times before. Uh, Altman described AI's current boom as a potential printing press moment. We've also heard it referred to as impactful as various other major invention moments. I'd actually quite like to put together a list um, because there have been so many. It, it's been compared to so many moments of invention. Um, I don't think the printing press was given safeguards when it was invented, so probably not the best uh, suggestion. Um, and he suggests that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigating the risks of increasingly powerful models. I think that is fair. Um, job substitution remains unresolved. That is point four. The key point there, uh, so also mentioned by sort of Christina Montgomery, as I mentioned, IBM's vice president and chief privacy and trust officer, and Gary Marcus, the former New York University professor, uh, they all tend to agree. Uh, IBM's vice president said um, the most important thing we need to do is prepare the workforce for AI-related skills through training and education. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, ChatGPT will take your job to some extent it probably has taken a lot of jobs already altman basically said that um but they also altman and um yeah others in the field tend to think that it will create new ones in its place as we've already discussed and then the fifth takeaway was as we were just discussing about sort of misinformation and persuasion in upcoming u.s elections um when asked about how generative ai might sway voters altman said that the potential AI to be used to manipulate voters and target disinformation are among my areas of greatest concern, um, especially because there's an election next year and the models are getting better and there is little regulation in place. So it's going to be a very interesting couple of years. Um, Altman also said that OpenAI has adopted policies to address these risks which include barring the use of ChatGPT for generating high volumes of campaign materials. Now, for what it's worth, I reckon that's bollocks. I think it would be incredibly easy to just get around those safeguards by splitting prompts into a couple of different areas and disguising its use as campaign materials. So that is that's nonsense defense from Sam and political posturing, as Rafi was alluding to earlier. Any final parts, or shall we move on to any other bits of news? And it may be that we're going to have to do another one on the theme and uh, and, and push talking about prompt hacking, prompt engineering. Let's touch on it later. But um, there was another piece of news about OpenAI releasing an open source model. Um, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, that's pretty exciting. It was more of a rumor rather than a new because it was not official. But uh, yeah, I think that will be a pretty good move and it will allow smaller players to experiment with the GPT models. Looking forward to that. And there was a point where uh, Elon Musk was referred to as saying, it's a bit ridiculous for OpenAI to start as open source and not for profit and now be closed source and for profit. Uh, regardless of Sam Altman's equity holdings. And he compared it to the idea that you've invested in a company that is aiming to protect the Amazon rainforest, and instead they end up logging it and selling the logs. 
Now, I think it's an interesting uh, comparison. I think he's feeling a little bit spurned for some reason. But is is the open source model them also just political posturing? Do we think? Uh, also, there's a big part of me that thinks that the open source model or the open source approach that OpenAI is now using is to land government contracts because governments will require open source models rather than closed box. Um, so I wonder if you guys have a thought on that. Yeah, I think it's a uh, cynical Rafi and cynical Alex, uh, Dave, but uh, you, you you probably are right. Yeah, I'm I'm with Elon. Um, I remember using OpenAI uh, six years ago, maybe um, when I was doing my master's in machine learning, and you know they were a friendly open website where you could go on, not see any um, marketing or political messages, and they would have a list of different NLP models you could use, um, a bit like Allen AI, if you know them. And you could just use their models freely and try out what they're working on. Um, and there was no kind of agenda or, or money-making initiative. And I appreciate these organization, organizations have to grow and persist somehow. But when Sam Altman joined, everything changed. And it's unsurprising given Sam Altman is a YC alumni. Uh, that's Y Combinator, which is the startup generator in the US for those who don't know. So um yeah I think a lot of this is political posturing. There's no way they can uh stop people from doing political campaigns, for example, because it's just text that's generated at the end of the day. Um he's just trying to show that they're doing something and get ahead of the backlash in in, in my in my view. All right. And our final piece of news is that the Internal Market Committee and Civil Liberties Committee of the European Union adopted a draft negotiating the mandate on the first ever rules for artificial intelligence. So everyone's talking about regulation and actually the EU is ahead of the game so much for being a bureaucratic mess, Mr. Farage. This is a non-political podcast. Okay, uh, so uh, once approved, there'll be the world's first rules on artificial intelligence. Um, these uh, rules include bans on biometric surveillance, emotion recognition, predictive policing, um, and it's, it's tailor-made um, for effectively tackling some of these general purpose AI models and foundation models like GPT. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's also going to allow people to make complaints about AI systems, and it'll be very interesting to see how this progresses. I imagine uh, it, it'll continue to move at quite a fast pace and we'll actually see this regulation land because it's 84 in favor, seven against and 12 abstentions. So that's that's pretty overwhelming uh, support in the European Parliament. I think the, the the missing thing about regulation is that people are just throwing out this word. And in politics, there's always this fog of war where people just throw out all encompassing words that mean nothing but allow politicians to do, to do anything and regulation is another one of these words um like what specifically are we trying to regulate with ai and you know in sam altman's testimony there were a few things mentioned like jobs i think ip and copyright is a big one um but banning things like predictive policing what's the overall general principle here what specifically are we trying to mitigate um that i think is not really clear with the, the word regulation. I think specifically in this case, it's uh, algorithmic discrimination. But I think, you know, your point stands for various areas of, of regulation. But I, I know I didn't mention that in my uh, description just there. Um, so I imagine that's the that's the reason. Uh, because as we've discussed as well, bias is, is rampant in some of these models. And it will be more rampant as we start. And as we get better at managing and mitigating bias, it will reduce. Um, but to put big use cases in models that are biased would be a mistake, right? It would be an unethical use, I suppose, at this stage. And it's probably regulating against that sort of thing, like malicious or like accidentally harmful uses of unsafe models. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. That's really interesting and also um, a good point. If that's the case, my kind of given my my lack of knowledge about the regulation and 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 so forth, I would my tentative suggestion would be the solution to biased models is not to ban ban all of AI from a domain. It's simply to not have biased models. 
Um, so either you work on the models to improve them, or you could even have some sort of test, um, which tests if models are biased or not. And then if they pass the test, you can then have non-biased predictive policing, which may actually be helpful to prevent crime. By the way, if anyone is listening and hoping to discover a startup idea, that one would be amazing. The tool that tests bias in other people's models. That would be a fascinating job and probably a very high value tool you could sell. Rafi, about the about the EU AI Act, it's I think as opposed to the to the Senate hearing in the US, there's very specific points that it makes and uh, very specific things that they're trying to ban. Like for example, the use of uh, real time AI for face detection in public areas or the use of emotion recognition systems in law enforcement or border controls or things like that. So they identify these key areas and just ban those specific systems. So it's not uh, it's not like a broad ban on AI, but it's uh, identifying a few very high risk areas, at least with the current models, and then just banning the use of AI for these purposes, right? So th- like Alex said, I think the EU is quite ahead there in the in the regulatory game yeah thanks you i guess you guys are right it is very specific in the eu case um i i just think on a high level i wonder if they have the right solution but maybe that's something with the eu in in, in general um because again I, I would consider um the benefits of ai and in those applications and if they're afraid of the drawbacks then can we not solve the drawbacks rather than banning all of it? And I'm not trying to massively push the agenda of AI because I'm an AI founder. You know, I'm as risk averse as the next person in society, but just trying to do the logical thing, which to me doesn't seem to be a blanket ban in a certain domain. Well, it could be both, right? So ban until we can prove that there's no bias, for example, for specific models, for specific high-risk areas, right? I think the legislation also includes uh, specifically things about uh, large language models, foundation models, and uh, there it's a bit more vague, I guess. I don't fully understand what what it would uh, do. One worry is, though, that... uh, like with the GDPR, right? The GDPR was like a very protective law, but it also um, it also hinders economic development in a way and uh, is a bit of an annoyance for some things. And at the same time, banning foundation models without proving that they are very safe might just mean that those models will not be developed and deployed in the EU and will be developed in um, in the US, for example, or in uh, China or wherever. And I think that was one of the worries uh, that uh, the US Senate hearing unveiled as well, that if we do have AI regulation, it needs to be on a global level. Otherwise, there's no point in just regulating the use of AI and the research in AI in the US and then just allowing uh, other countries to run rampant with it. But at the same time, it feels like a bit of a political worry on what gives you the right to enforce like uh, AI research on a global level. So it needs to be some some kind of uh, the whole world coming together and deciding on some rules rather than the US deciding those rules or just the EU on its own. This is actually a great point. And uh, unfortunately, something that won't happen because you know um, the likes of China, for example, will never see eye to eye with with the US on on things like data access, and that's what we've been seeing in um, China, for example. They don't have such constraints on what, what sort of personal data the government can access and what the government does with that, and so they essentially have you know multiples um, more data on ordinary people that uh, Western companies and governments have, which enable them to build very advanced models for certain use cases. And yeah, maybe we don't want to go that far, but certainly the economic policy of banning not only has negative market impacts, but also, as you say, will uh, potentially put us behind in economic competition with other countries. Are we going to see an AI arms race, Rafi? I think we're already in it. (laughs) <laughs> I totally agree. I think we've probably been in it for a while. We only started to think about it when ChatGPT was released, but it's definitely been happening. And it's not just right. Software. You go. Sorry. Sorry, since this is a 
very um, politics-oriented podcast. Uh, it's not just software, you know, why do you think China wants Taiwan? I mean, all the chips that they develop. Semiconductors, well. right? Okay. Now, do we think we can get on to talking about the theme a little bit? Um, any suggestions on how we can tackle this a smidge? I think we should probably come back to the theme more another time just because of, of time um, and it's been a really interesting week and a really interesting discussion um but i am keen for the people who haven't dabbled um you know alex pap you mentioned that you had managed to get access to adobe firefly to create the image the watercolor that you've got in the background which is actually really really lovely i quite like it um open ai's gpt4 models are available very 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 affordable to everyone um i would suggest that you you play with those and as you are playing with it literally just 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 book out a day in your calendar and try using these tools to do what you do on a daily basis if you haven't done that already you're missing out on a lot of interesting um experiences but in order to just provide tips for anyone who does want to do that um do you guys have any sort of must do things when you're generating prompts and and there's probably a bit of a difference which we can cover which is prompts where you're doing something in your personal life right and prompts where you're trying to build a system and we haven't spoken much about how we are developing or using different prompts for different use cases internally at genie and um, i mean we've we, we've pre-GPT being released, we have had AI implemented in public um, as sort of back-end services that provide a better experience to the users. But, you know, obviously there has to be prompt engineering that goes into that, a lot of testing. Um, how do you tackle that? I think we're all cursed a little bit with knowledge now because we have, we've all dabbled and tweaked and engineered and hacked hundreds, if not into a thousand different prompts now. Um, so I'm curious to know what your your key tips are for, for prompts for people just starting out. I think, as you said, Alex, a lot of it will come from actually experimenting and seeing what works or not. So an iterative approach. But if I had to give any tips, it would be to um, to be specific in what you ask of the model, but at the same time, be succinct. You can kind of treat it like like you're talking to another person and you're trying to get them to do something. You don't necessarily need to be polite, but sometimes it actually helps. And yeah, you, you need to be specific in what you're asking of it. Uh, I'm not sure to... what other tips I would give. Being succinct is something, I think that's a journey that everyone will go on. They'll start looking at all of the different ways that you can put together a prompt and they'll try and make like little tweaks and it'll get bigger and it'll bloat and you'll end up with quite a large prompt. And actually I found when I've gone from creating this bloated thing, which may take a couple of hours to get to this situation of trial and error, I then try and condense it down to just two sentences and sometimes it outperforms the bloated prompt. Um, so it's quite interesting and sometimes that's because I'm trying a different technique, like ask for something and then just specify an output. Or I just remove all the examples I've given it because actually for some reason, there's something in that example that derails it a bit from what I really want uh, or maybe providing a different example. But I think being succinct is is probably, I, I would agree, I think that's, that's my number one takeaway, uh, which is great because it also makes things simpler. And it also means for people listening, do not get sold on these expensive prompt libraries, prompt books, because they look really fancy and often they don't perform as well as a simple prompt, but you'll think that you need to rely on them. So just a, a word of warning, a word of caution for people looking to find, you know, premium prompts and thinking they're worth paying for. You don't need to pay for them. Just do them yourself. You'll learn a lot more. Another tip is to uh, prime the, the language model by uh, providing a persona to it. So if you want to do a task that's in the legal domain like we do, then you can just tell it that uh, you are a lawyer and you want to do that. Or just, just give it a specific persona. And that seems to help. It's kind of uh, counterintuitive, but uh, it does help. Not sure why. It's not counterintuitive. It is kind of intuitive. 
but yeah, depending on the persona you uh, you give the language model, it, it it's like it's a different person and knows different things. And the other that, that's a bit more of an advanced technique. But uh, the other thing that I found work really works really really well is asking the model to think through its response step by step. So these models, are, as we've been discussing, have begun to exhibit something that looks like reasoning. But at the same time, they're not very good at doing that internally. They're better at doing that externally while uh, like writing out their reasoning steps in a prompt. So if you don't get the response that, uh, like a good response in one of your prompts, just try adding to the end of the prompt Let's think step by step, and that has uh, has been shown to, um, to to make the results quite a bit better. Your response will be longer as well because before the the answer, it will also have a chain of uh, thinking and the thought process that led to that answer. But then it actually makes the answer uh, to be better as well. That said, I agree. We should uh, we condensed the whole theme of the episode into uh, two minutes, so we should probably. Uh, close it here and come back to it in a in a next episode one thing i just wanted to ask is uh, some people will have seen like temperature and tone settings um is it worth just explaining when you want high temperature and when you want low temperature so when you so this temperature setting is essentially how predictable the answers of the model will be. If you have a temperature of zero, then the answers are a bit uh, more predictable and kind of safer, but uh, less uh, exploratory. But if you if you uh, increase the v- value of the temperature, then the, the model takes a bit more liberty, I guess, to, to explore the space. So you'll get answers that maybe sometimes are slightly more incorrect, but... Uh, they are more creative so play around with the temperature as well and see uh, and see how it works with your prompt all right any thoughts from you Rafi, on uh, your experience as a prompt engineer i think i you know i'd rather not condense that into a few sentences because that would be a big topic so happy to talk on that in a future podcast and maybe the cat can also contribute <laughs> i think my cat galileo came here and wants to uh to interact <laughs> with the podcast a bit hi everyone your cat tones very well with your background image that's why i picked it the cat not the background. <laughs> all right uh whistle stop tour through our crazy things we've seen this week uh mine is that elon Musk has said that open ai wouldn't exist without him so i just i feel like his ego knows no bound um specifically he's referring to a 50 million dollar investment which you know is a lot of money so yes that's fair um there's an ai meal planner that we can post a link to in the in the description i guess uh, alex but yeah that's the craziest thing that i've seen this week Right. Meal practice. We'll wrap up there. That sounds good. Yeah, I'll plunk a link into uh, the show notes for that. Mealpractice.com slash generate effortless meal planning with AI generated recipes. However, be warned, AI generated recipes are not as good as human generated recipes. I have experienced this, but they're pretty good as a starting point. Um, next week we will be talking about maybe prompt hacking, maybe AI companions. We will see. And then we'll probably only have a few more episodes in this season and we will uh, wrap it up and have a little two-week gap. But for now, we will keep appearing in the feed weekly. So thank you very much and we will speak to you all soon. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Rafi. Bye, everyone.